Um, so just give you a heads up, my name is Joe Davis, I'm the, uh, the lead pastor here at Grace Life, and we're continuing our, our series on Philippians. This is week three, and the name of this message is called Humble Love. It's from Philippians chapter two, <clears throat> one through 11. But before we get into that, I just want to recap for you. Last week, we talked about how we love each other through our suffering, and I explained to you how our suffering needs to become a gift to others, where instead of us looking for people to give us compassion and mercy and all those things when we're suffering, that we're willing to allow the lessons we learned from our suffering to benefit other people. And I pointed out a few people that I asked permission to ahead of time, and I explained how their suffering was causing me to fall in love with them as a brother or sister in Christ and how it was blessing me. And it's clear by the context and flow that Paul had in mind for this suffering to blend into this periscope of humility. Isn't that a good word picture? Suffering blending into a periscope of humility. I don't even know if that makes sense. It just sounds really flow. When you understand, guys, how your suffering can benefit others, it is possible for you to become more willing to maybe even suffer for them. But to do that, it takes humility. To be willing to suffer for someone else, it takes humility. Just as Christ humbled himself, and willingly suffered in humility for us. Christ, who didn't think anything of the fact that he was equal with God, came down and lived in our filth, lived in our muck and our mire and our mud and our sinfulness for 33 years and suffered so that we might live. And what happens is we talked last week about how suffering can change your perspective on life. And when experienced with the benefit of the knowledge of Christ... And the Holy Spirit, it can change your values and brings you the greatest gift and the most important ingredient for love and for a church to be effective. And that is the ingredient of humility. So like we do here at Grace Life, we like to take each passage and break it down into three applications. History answers the question, what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? And then we break down the theology. What about God? What did he do and and why and how did he do it? And then and only then can you really answer the question of the devotional application. What about me and what am I supposed to do and how and why do I do it? Don't ever skip right to the devotional when you read a passage because you're going to get some bad application. You have to understand the history and theology first. So let's look at the history of this passage. Historically, Paul is in prison, suffering socially, emotionally, and physically, but he is thriving spiritually. We talked about that last week. The, spirit, or the, the historical application is still very similar here. And just to remember, he was suffering because he was preaching the gospel. The reason he was suffering is because he was suffering for a cause he believed in, which was taking the message of hope and redemption to those who need it. And what he did in Philippians chapter 1, this is our first message in this series, he expressed love and intimate vulnerability and compassion for them. You know what else he did, and we talked about this last week, he expressed a willingness to either live or die for them. Whatever was good for their walk, for their faith, for their trust in Jesus, whatever it was, if it meant he lived in this dark, dank prison with the sword over his head, maybe ready to execute him, I'm willing to live in these conditions. But if my dying benefits you, I'm willing to die so that you have your faith furthered. And he set the groundwork through making himself vulnerable 
Remember we talked about one of the most important aspects of grace life will be this culture of vulnerability. And I really am challenging. I want to stretch you to learn what it means to be vulnerable with each other because we're not going to really grow as a church unless we are. But what Paul does is he sets this groundwork through making himself extremely vulnerable. And because, guys, get this. Now, this is what's so amazing. Because he made himself vulnerable, because he made himself humble, get this, he can speak with intense authority. But isn't that kind of the opposite of the way we think? I have to portray this really put-together image, this well-kept thing. i got to make sure people know that I'm smart and I'm brilliant, and then they'll listen to me. Paul says, no, I'm vulnerable, I'm suffering, I'm broken. And they say, well, tell us what you want to say. You see how that works? Humility, vulnerability, and suffering gives him authority. I love that. So let's look at the passage, shall we? Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. I've put it on three different slides so you can follow along. Here's how he starts. This is on the heels of chapter 1, right, about being vulnerable and then suffering. Vulnerable and suffering, now humility. Watch. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, don't look out only for your own interests as far as what church programs are offered. But look out for the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was, who who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he's saying he was already equal with God. It wasn't something he needed to obtain. It wasn't something he was working toward. He was already there. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was God. He says, this is not something he had to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, humility, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, the, in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. You see how what happens? He humbled himself and then God exalts him. Humility created exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He accomplished everything that in the flesh we like to accomplish, where we are in charge of everything, by first being humble and vulnerable and suffering. So that's the history and the reading of the passage. Let's look at the theology. What about God? What did he do? Why did he do it? Paul explains some supernatural gifts that God gives to his church that we're supposed to share with one another. And guys, listen, these are things that make the church different from the United Way, from the Boy Scouts of America, from Goodwill, 
from Kiwanis clubs, the Rotary Club. This is why the church is different than all those organizations. I'm not faulting them. I'm not saying those aren't good things. I'm not judging those. I'm saying the church, yes, I'm saying the church is superior to those because the church has been given supernatural gifts. Because God has called us and enabled us to have relationships with one another that are founded upon four supernatural things that Paul outlines in this passage. These are gifts that God gives us to share with one another. The first one is comfort. Communicating to each other with tenderness, seeing into the fear of another, and speaking to that fear. That's what comfort is. You see that? Communicating to each other with tenderness. Like, you know, I'm claustrophobic. Get over it, Joe. Okay, so story. We went out to dinner with some friends a couple weeks ago. And, you know, when you have a party of like eight, they put you in one of those round booths. And I could see what was happening as I was walking. I could, I, I'm smart. I can think ahead. I was a chess player in college. I'm going to end up right in the middle of that circle. I'm not going to be able to get out. I'm not going to be able to fidget. I'm not going to be able to see what's coming. I'm not going to be able to flag down the waiter to get another beer. I didn't want to be in there. I said, hey, can we adjust? You know what one of my friends says? It's, I, like, I, I felt like, okay, I'm going to have to explain to these people why I don't want to sit in the middle, right? You know what my friend says? Oh, yeah, I know. You got some claustrophobic. We got it. Don't worry about it. He spoke to my fear with tenderness and provided comfort. Isn't that a great example? What about fellowship? Another great thing he gives us, sharing or common participation in something by two or more people. God gives us that. And what is this common participation? the gospel. It's recognizing our sinfulness and our redemption through the work of Jesus that brings people together who otherwise wouldn't even like each other for the most part. Right? Patriot fan, Chuck? I saw you laughing, right? Chuck was saying, I would not like, Chuck's saying, I would not like Pastor Joe if it weren't for Jesus. I feel you. I feel you. Likewise. All right. (laughs) All right. The next gift he gives is affection. Now, I'm going to get a little graphic, but just bear with me. It denotes the physical organs of the intestines, not physically, but like the actual feelings, like something deep down inside, to communicate how deep Emotions are felt, and you've all been there. When you have this love or compassion for someone, that when they're going through pain, you can feel it inside. Or when you're heartbroken for someone else, and you can feel it, you can actually, like they call it a pit in your stomach. That's what the word affection means there. It doesn't mean like, oh, that sure is a cute baby. Look at that cat meme. That's adorable. The cat videos, I love those, right? And that's not what the affection he's talking about. He's talking about, man, I love this person so much. I have a pit in my stomach. We were just talking to some people out front today about one of our brothers in our fellowship that we're praying for and how much we love them and we care for them. We know they're hurting, and it just I could just feel it in my stomach. Man, I just love that guy so much, and I want him to be part of our family. That's affection. And the next gift he gives is mercy, deep consolation, having a pity for the ills of others, 
it really is, mercy is compassion in action. Affection creates mercy, which creates action. Do you see that? Affection, the deep feeling that you have in your gut for somebody that loved, that affection, <clears throat> when they're suffering, creates mercy, which produces action. For example, when my friend said, no, Joe, I know how you feel about sitting in the middle of that bench. Don't worry about it. I got it. He's a friend. He cares about me. He loves me. He, did, he makes it a situation where he can speak to my fear and help me. By the way, that, now you know, if you ever go out to lunch with me, let me sit on the end. Can we just do that now without saying anything else? Thank you. I'm telling you, don't test me. So that's the, that's the theological part. What does God do? He gives us those incredible gifts. All right, let's look at the fun part. Let's look at the devotional. What does a humble church look like? See, all those things I shared with you, they start with humility. Humility starts with enlightenment. Humility is an example or a result of the gift of faith. Because faith is a gift. And one of the things faith gives us is humility. Humility that says, Jesus, I need you. I'm sinful. I need redemption. I need restoration. I need transformation. That's humble. Okay, to understand humility, we first must call out arrogance. I'm just going to real quickly describe you what an arrogant church looks like. And I hear some of you saying, yeah, Pastor Joe, you get some of those arrogant pieces of people. Sinfulness. Call them out right now by name. First thing arrogance does, it forces you to look out for your own interests and needs. You see how that happens in church? Isn't it amazing how even in church, a place that's supposed to be dominated by comfort, love, affection, and mercy, we look out for our own needs and interests through church programs, through how the money is spent, through the music, maybe even the location. I've been in churches that, no lie, fought over the color of carpet. No, I mean, I'm not saying that as a joke. It's true. And, like, there were meetings over it. I remember one time I was in a church meeting that fought over what type of coffee pot we were going to get. Because some people wanted this one. This is what an arrogant church looks like. All right, you ready? I'm going to offend some of you on this one. Shocker, right? Obsesses with moral outrage. Sometimes it's political moral outrage. We've got that right now, don't we? It's so funny. You've got all these people that are campaigning for offices, and they're all immoral, and they're all outraged at each other's morality. But you know what churches do? Churches start beginning this moral outrage over people who have a different political ideology. That's one example, right? How can you be a conservative and love Jesus? How can you be a liberal and love Jesus? And then that leads to social correctness. This is how we're going to do things. We are not going to wade into this battle. We're going to pick this side. And these people, we don't say this, but what happens is we say these people by nature are not welcome. And no matter what your ideology, no matter what your political leaning, if you have a church full of arrogance, these things will dominate your obsession. 
And we find such comfort in moral outrage, don't we? You know why we find such comfort in moral outrage? Because it feeds our arrogance and distracts us from our own sinfulness. What, somehow your depravity is better than that of others? That's why grace life will never be politically liberal or conservative. We will be biblical. We desire to be humble and vulnerable and generous, and we will confront people not with ideology. We will confront people not with politics. We will confront people with one thing, grace, mercy. Confront with grace and mercy. You know what else an arrogant church looks like? It can't love brothers and sisters. They can only criticize and judge them. It's very hard for you to love people who are flawed when you yourself can just focus on their flaws and don't see your own. Boy, we're good at that. We're really good at that, aren't we? We're really good. Well, you know, Chaz should probably not wear that shirt to church, that Guns N' Roses t-shirt. I, I, welcome to the jungle. Is that Guns N' Roses? Okay, it is, okay. You can only criticize people when you're arrogant. All right, here's the next one. Get this. Now, this, this is a little bit... Arrogant churches crave comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. We love those things, right? Think about this now. An arrogant church, an arrogant person craves other people to comfort them. Give them affection. An arrogant person craves fellowship and mercy. And we love those people who give it to us, don't we? But it's not really love. It's just your appetite. Arrogant people have an insatiable appetite for comfort, love, affection, and mercy. We want it, want it, want it, want it, want it. But arrogance cannot give comfort, love, affection, and mercy. It can only consume it. And if we have a bunch of people in our church that are just consuming comfort, love, affection, and mercy, what's going to happen? We're going to burn each other out. This is important. Don't confuse yourself with an appetite and love. We can fall in love with people who give us, man, they are so compassionate. I really like being around them. But arrogance cannot give those things back. All it can do is consume them. So the question is, do we aspire to have a church that is characterized by comfort, love, affection, and mercy? If we want them to be a reality, we must install humility as the highest personal value in our church. And Paul explains the process. I'm going to tell you exactly how you can install humility in your life and in our fellowship. There are some steps. The first one is identify common ground, verse 1 and 2. He talked about that. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, if there's any compassion or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So that's the first step is to find common ground. The gospel. The next step, this is important, abandon spiritual conceit and ambition. 
Look what he says in verse 3. I'll just read it to you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So that's the second step, abandoning spiritual conceit and ambition. Abandon ambition or accomplishment in your church or even in your walk with Jesus. How much you read the Bible, how much you pray, labeling yourself a prayer warrior or talking about your position in church, that's all spiritual conceit and ambition. Matthew seven fifteen says, judge not that you not be judged. For with what you judge, you will also be judged. And with what you measure, you will also be measured back. Do not look at the speck in your brother's eye. Do not consider the plank in your own eye before considering the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this means, by the way, no spiritual criticism. I call this depravity amnesia. You probably saw that in my Sunday sermon preview I put out there. Have you ever considered those whom you are critical of and assumed you are above them in that particular area of maturity? Well, I personally would never wear that shirt, Chaz. I got my problems. Don't get me wrong. You've seen me drive on the streets here during the season, right? I've got my problems, but I am far above you in that area. That's arrogance. But isn't that kind of how we go? Like we look at somebody and say, you know what? I, I think that you should probably be a little better with this. And if we do it without vulnerability and intimacy, it is judgment. He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each think of others as more significant than himself. It's hard to be conceited spiritually if you truly understand your own depravity. You know, I think we should create a smartphone app for this with push notifications. Whenever there is a sense of your depravity rearing its ugly head, it'll do bling and then vibrate until you push, you know, slide it across to remind you just in case you're getting depravity amnesia. That way you won't be spiritually critical. There's no room at the top in a church. Okay, I'm a pastor. So what? Big deal. I'm also a sinner. I'm a pretty bad sinner. I need grace every day. I am not above any of you when it comes to my own struggle with my flesh and my sin. Just because I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with you from the words up here, it doesn't mean that I'm any better. It might mean I talk louder, but that's really all it is. If you're trying to pull, here's the way to look at it. If you're trying to pull your brother or sister up to where you are, then you are not loving them. You're being critical. Instead, you need to, from where you are, push people up, not pull them. See, when you think, when you have the mindset of, I need to get this person and bring them along to where I am, that's arrogant. I need to get behind this person and be with them, and let's go up together. That is comfort. And then the last thing I want to, or the third thing of the step is abandon selfish spiritual agendas. In verse 4, he says, look out not for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but those interests around you. Contrary to popular American thinking, this nor any other church does not exist to scratch whatever liturgical itch you may have. 
It does not exist to meet your intellectual demands or to satisfy your program appetite. It does not even exist to to fulfill your self-esteem or ego in any way. The agenda of the church should be, and I wrote this down to make sure I get it right, the agenda of the church should be not to satisfy its members, that's you, but to love and sacrifice for all of those in need, both in and out of our fellowship. We're not here to make you feel comfortable. We're here to love those who need to be loved. Stop coming to church. You know, i got to get my fill on Sunday morning. No. Stop coming to church looking to get filled or to be fed. Enough. Start coming to church to be emptied, to serve, to love, to sacrifice. And that will only happen if the main quality of our members is humility. And Paul gives us a fail-safe to remember when you are filled with spiritual arrogance instead of humility. He says, remember what Jesus did. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. I'm sorry, I have to. <clears throat> have this mind among yourselves, just in case you get a little spiritually arrogant, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. He was God. He didn't take the power that was God. He didn't take it. Instead, he endured suffering for our benefit, died that we might live, and then God in return exalted him. So here's what happens, guys. I have another, I have a picture for you. And, and um, uh, cake, cake team, get the cake team ready. Cake team, get ready. Don't come up. Just get the cake team ready. So the first cake I want to show you, I've used this illustration before, but I really like it. So, And I worked for hours baking this cake yesterday. Right there. That's, that's, a, that's a spiritually arrogant cake. That's what the church looks like when it bakes its cake with arrogance. There's no compassion. There's no mercy. There's no affection. There's no kindness. There's just people Judging me for using that word is all there is. So, <laughs> I'm more spiritual than you are. I want my way more often. That's what happens to a church. But now, I got a cake made for everyone today. And I'm going to explain to you how this is going to work. You guys bring it on up here. And uh, I don't know if you can come up on the stage without break. But maybe just tilt a little bit so you guys can see. Just tilt it just a little bit. Tilt it just a little bit. You get on this side and tilt it. Okay, just so you know. Yeah, just go like that. Don't let it slide off. It says, it says comfort, love, affection, and mercy. That's a good tasting cake right there. See, this is what the cake will taste and look like. See the black icing? That's licorice icing. That's nasty, right? So see that? That is, that is what happens when you have a cake that is baked by an arrogant church. But a church with humility and brokenness and vulnerability to teach compassion and comfort and mercy and affection and love. You guys can take it back, okay? Just take it back out there. There's going to be some more of that cake in just a minute. Humility. People in touch with the reality of their own depravity bakes a different kind of pastry that has the flavors of comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy 
and it becomes so tasty to those outside of us. Right? I mean, if we're a church that's pursuing our own ideology, our own spiritual arrogance, we're not going to be very inviting. But if we are a church that's founded on vulnerability, humility, and suffering for one another, it produces compassion, love, affection, and mercy, and it makes us tasty. Sometimes as a church staff, we struggle with this stuff. We might get frustrated with some of you. And we can fall into being critical of you. I'm not talking about any of you that are here. I'm talking about those who were here the last couple weeks that aren't here today. Those are the ones Those are the ones I'm being critical of. You guys are great. But when we do that, you know, we are arrogant and we're suffering from depravity amnesia. And our love is replaced by pious spiritual arrogance and personal agendas. So, are we as a church suffering from depravity amnesia? Are you ready to embrace the fact that you need to be aware of your depravity? I'm not saying that you should feel guilty and depressed because you're depraved. That's what the blood of Jesus is for. That's what the cross is for. That's what the work of Christ on the cross does, is it cancels out the spiritual penalty and eternal consequence of our depravity gives us new life but we know that without christ we have this depravity and we can't forget about it or are we going to be a humble church made with comfort fellowship affection and mercy see we need to be swimming in comfort love affection mercy fellowship is it possible to get sick of these things Listen, man, there's too much fellowship and affection here. I need some judgment. (laughs) Nobody ever says that. But to do this, we must think of others as better than ourselves so we can become one big, massive humility cake with delicious buttercream icing. Mm. So here's what we're going to do. Daryl's going to come up in just a few minutes and kind of give some thoughts and some things about what's going on in our church. But before that, let me give you the instructions of what's going to happen today. I know some of you may not like cake. I'm judging you for that. But I want you to, even, even if it's just a small piece, I want you to go out with a little sweet taste in your mouth as a reminder of what our church, Grace Life, needs to taste like to others, right? A, a cake made with comfort, affection, fellowship, mercy. And as you're going out, take a piece, big or small, at least everybody take one small bite so that you can leave saying, okay, this is, and it may only last for a few seconds, but at least it's a reminder that you'll leave with, this is what our church must taste like, and it won't happen unless we start with humility. Daryl, come on up. Joe, you gave me a lot to think about there. I never really thought that my depravity was as bad as your depravity. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to consider that now. 